Thank, thank you very much. Thank you for the opportunity. It's my first time in Oslo, so I'm really very much thrilled to be here. Uh, th the book is not as pessimistic as it was told. Uh, and secondly, it's not a book of somebody who does not like European Union. Uh, but it's a very much a book which was coming from a very concrete kind of a experiences, particularly as an East European that I, uh, I had. And this was that when I was starting uh, writing the book, European Union was taken for granted. And this is what East Europeans, in a certain way, are not ready to tolerate because uh, we have seen a kind of a political system that at least in places like Bulgaria looked quite stable 30 years ago, collapsing overnight. So from this point of view, if Eastern Europe has a certain type of an expertise, it is an expertise on the fragility of everything political. So when in 2009, basically after the financial crisis, then Mr. Barroso was the president of uh, uh, the European Commission, so he started to invite outside experts, talking this and that. And I was one of the invited, and he said, what you can do for us? They said, to be honest, not much, because I'm not specialist on European integration. What I know is how things fall apart. I have been working on the Soviet disintegration. I have been working on the disintegration of Yugoslavia. So I said, but what I can do for you, President, is I can get the first-class historians who know how big political projects disintegrate, and let's see what kind of irrelevant lessons we can do. And then we really got the first-class specialists on the Habsburg disintegration the Soviet and the Yugoslavs, I mean Europeans, Americans, uh, Russians, and then we invited five or six of the key person in Brussels, Robert Cooper and others, and said, let's see, is there, and this is not about elementary comparisons, so we know that neither European Union is Soviet Union, nor Yugoslavia was the Habsburg Empire, but there are three things that stayed with me after this kind of a discussions and in a certain way pushed me to go for the book. The first is that disintegration of these big political projects normally is an unintended consequence. It's not that, for example, the anti-EU forces should prevail in order for the disintegration to take place. Secondly, the very definition of disintegration very much depends where you stand. For example, if you talk about Europe on two speed, and if you're talking much more about Europe as consolidation of the Eurozone and keeping the periphery loose, if you're staying in Berlin, this is going to be called further integration. If you're staying in Sofia, this is going to look slightly like disintegration. So even on this, we have, and this was uh, my colleague Jan Zelonka who wrote that we have a thousand theory about European integration. We do not have a theory on European disintegration. We don't know what it means. And certainly, so my idea was if it is this type of uh, unintended consequences very much based on the miscalculation of the different political actors, how their kind of acts can affect uh, their politics, what we should be interested for, and how we can prevent uh, certain type of uh, negative developments. And in the book, uh, I, uh, I made an, an argument which is not going to strike you as being very original, but my argument was that out of the four crises that basically have been shaping the European Union in the last 10 years, starting with the financial crisis, which has a very important impact uh, for changing the economic expectations of the European citizens. Now you have much more people who believe that their kids are going to have a life which is going to be worse than their own, which also very much brought the South-North uh, divide in Europe. 
And it was very important because it became a kind of the divide between creditors and debtors. And the relations between creditors and debtors are not the relations of equality. And thirdly, what was important was that, uh, paradoxically, the financial crisis put an end to one of the very important legitimation force behind the European projects, namely the convergence power of the European Union. When the poor countries enter the European Union, they're never going to become as rich as the richest, but over time, the distance is kind of a <coughs> closing. And this was very much there. It's still true for Eastern Europe. It's not true for some of the South European countries. For example, in Greece, even if their kind of economic reforms program goes well, according to the expectations of uh, uh, the IMF, in 15 years, the difference between uh, the incomes, the average incomes of the Greeks compared with the projected average incomes of the Germans are going to be the same what was the distance between the Greek and West German incomes in the day they entered the European Union. So this is, in my view, this is quite important because it's very much about the very hard legitimacy. The second crisis, of course, was very much about uh, the Ukrainian crisis, Russians' annexation of Crimea, Donbass. And this was critically important because uh, part of the identity of the European Union, and I'm going to touch on this, was based on the fact that in Europe, not in the world, but in Europe, military power doesn't matter anymore. So it's not that Europeans were so naive to believe that it doesn't matter anywhere. But the idea was that in Europe what matters is, is basically economic power and soft power. And then suddenly you realize that probably we managed to convince ourselves that military power doesn't matter because we don't have it. And that at a certain point of view it could be quite important element of all this. Uh, and the third, of course, came Brexit. And Brexit, of course, was very important on many respects, institutionally, economically. This is one of the biggest European economies getting out, one of the most globally minded, one of the best globally connected. But also the problem of Brexit was very much psychological also. It was unexpected. It was shocking. And secondly, it changed the question. If before Brexit, the questions that all the people were making their PhDs on was, who is going to join next the European Union? Then Brexit comes, and the question is who is going to leave next. So suddenly, disintegration, which was perceived as inevitable just a day ago, start to be perceived as kind of unthinkable, start to be perceived as inevitable, people start to go. On the other side, of course, on a midterm, Brexit very much contributed to the consolidation of the European Union because the way the real life Brexit looks like. Uh, managed to convince uh, uh, many Europeans that getting out of the European Union is not the best that they happen to them. But then comes the migration crisis, and uh, the major argument of my book is that the migration crisis is the only pan-European crisis of all these three, because for the southern countries, the Ukrainian crisis was not a crisis. They didn't understand what we're talking about. For the countries out of the Eurozone, the financial crisis was not so important. Poland never was part of the economic crisis. They didn't have a recession. Uh, during uh, uh, the financial uh, crisis period. And of course, UK was a crisis, but certainly in many of the countries it was felt very differently. The paradox of the migration crisis was that it was a pan-European crisis, nevertheless that most of the refugees were to a very few number of countries. And secondly, that when you talk about the number of the people that came to Europe, it's not so impressive. 
if you simply talk numbers, and I'm going to tell you why we should not talk only numbers, but if we talk only numbers, uh, the, the number of people that came as a result of the Middle East crisis, and I'm talking particularly about the refugee crisis, is twice uh, smaller than the number of people who went to Turkey. When then the migration crisis is so important? In my view, this is important because it's transforming the domestic politics of all the countries. And the migration crisis is not about the concrete number of people coming from Syria or uh, Afghanistan. It's very much about, as a result of the migration of the refugee crisis, uh, and my comparison is that it was Europe's 9-11, it forced Europeans to see the surrounding world with a different eyes. 9-11, from this point of view, was also not what the, matters, the numbers matter. 3,000 people being killed in New York is a tragedy, but in terms of numbers, we know much bigger tragedies around the world. But it dramatically changed the way America was seeing the globalization, Americanized world, and others. The same happened in Europe with the refugee crisis. Suddenly, what started to prevail is what I'm going to call the demographic imagination suddenly you look at the world and you start to look at certain projections and statistics which can turn to be wrong, but now for you they're reality. And first you start to understand that you're living in the world in which this is going to be in 50 years the world with not so many Europeans. If in 1950s uh, there were two to three Europeans to every person living in sub-Saharan Africa, according to the projections in the year 2100, there are going to be seven or eight of Africans to every European living in the world. For the general public, this came, came as a shock, because most of the people were living just in their own countries. Secondly, uh, you start to understand that in this world, which is so interconnected, it's also very uneven. And it's not simply that people in Oslo or Vienna are living much better than people in most parts of the world, but for the first time, the people living in some of the small villages in Africa or Asia, they know how people are living in Vienna and Oslo. So in a certain way, if you have a major impact of the globalization, this is that it changed the frame of comparisons. <coughs> If you, before you're comparing yourself with the people next to you, with the country next to you, you suddenly start to compare with, with those who are doing best. And I do believe it's great. It's inspirational on one level. Or it could be also threatening because what also Europeans recognize is that in this world which is interconnected and even and which is very much haunted by global comparisons, if you are living in a small and badly governed place and if you want to radically change your life in one generation, better change the country than try to change the government. So paradoxically, migration ended up as the 21st century version of the revolution. But for this, you don't need parties, you don't need manifesto, you don't need this and that. Of course, you have a risk-taking from some of these places coming to coming to Europe or the United States or Canada is a very kind of a dangerous journey. But this is what you're realizing. And I'm saying this because it was this aspect of migration that explains the fact that nevertheless, that in many of the European Union countries, there are no migrants, there are no refugees, particularly refugees. I'm going to make a, but I'm using this because people like to make this distinction for one reason. Politically, it's good to play it, but when you're seeing from the point of view of the person on the street, basically it's about foreigners whom you don't know, who are coming, and so on. Uh, this became a major issue. Uh, and when I'm saying that some of the countries which are the most negative and hostile to the migrants are the countries which do not have migrants, I'm going to give you some data from Hungary. According to the opinion poll being done in Hungary, there are more Hungarians that claim that they have seen in their life 
uh, unidentified flying objects than the ones who said that they have personally encountered a refugee. Uh, and I'm going to touch something about the East European kind of dimension of this, but this was basically my major argument, and the, my major argument was that while people are very much focusing on the institutional reforms and what can be done or not done, uh, I do believe that what we see in the last 10 years, for the first time, we see a political crisis. Normally, European Union has been developing its response to crisis. Uh, particularly Brussels likes to tell you that European Union is a project that he's been developing. But if you basically go historically, you're going to see that there were different crises, and as a response to different crises, the integration has been progressing. For the first time now, you have converging paths. As a response to all this crisis, we have a much more institutional integration, but at the same time, the political support for it has been dramatically declining, which was not the case before. And here is the second part in which I'll try basically, here is where basically the book stops. And I'll try to make a next step and say, okay, let's try to see if you're trying to go even in a kind of a bigger picture in Europe. What is, in fact, in crisis? What should be reinvented? And my argument is that European Union and the way we know it today is constituted of three different Europes, which also historically came one after another. The first was the post-war Europe. It was post-1945, and it was very much based in a shared experience of the World War II. And particularly, don't forget, European Union was constituted by the countries that have been in one way or the other defeated in the war. The only European country that ended up as a victor, I mean, on the democratic side, United Kingdom, was not part of the founders. And this type of uh, shared experience of defeat and basically shared experience of kind of strong skepticism to nationalism and the nation-state was critically important. But this post-war Europe was also transformed very much as post-war, understood as Europe in which the war doesn't matter anymore. And here is the three crises of this first post-war Europe. First, it's the crisis of memory. Basically, you don't have any more the generations that had this as a personal experience. And nevertheless, that in Europe there was a lot of, uh, particularly in Western Europe, Germany and others, uh, a lot of stress to put the education of the younger generations through this type of a war experience. Uh, if you go to the data, and I was uh, seeing some of the data coming from the German schools from five years ago, one third of the students believed that the human rights was equally defended during the Nazi Germany than they are today. It's not anything about nostalgia about Hitler. Simply for them, Hitler is an ancient history. Uh, and one of the interesting impact of the new technologies is that it uh, makes people more and more communicating within their own generations. But you have less and less, in a certain way, talk with the grandparents and others that have lived history. And because basically you don't have in home any more people that have been alive during these wars and so on and so on, it became slightly abstract. As uh, Tony Judd, uh, uh, the great uh, Anglo-American historian, used to say, we're not learning history anymore. We're just learning the lessons of history. But when you're learning just the lessons of history, you cannot identify it with the people that have been living there, and it becomes difficult. The second thing is, paradoxically, one of the reasons why the, uh, the mm -hmm. World War II memories are fading is based on the fact that our societies are becoming much more diverse. When the Syrian refugees are coming and we talk about the wars, for them the war is their war. 
they have a much stronger sense of the, the destructive nature of the war, but it's not the World War II that they're going to remember. Uh, and for these people, basically, it's not easy to connect to this type of a narrative because basically it does not fit to their own experience. And certainly, and I do believe this is going to become more and more a problem, this uh, post-war Europe was very much the Europe I was talking about that managed to convince itself that the military power doesn't matter. This was particularly strong, of course, in Germany, if you're going to see what happened to the military budgets and so on. Even two, three years ago, in all other parts of the world, the military budgets were going up. Only Europeans basically was declining their military budgets, believing that it's not about us. And there was this beautiful book where all these uh, soldiers has gone. Uh, and you can see that we're not talking simply about financial politics. There is a major pacification of the European mind, which is a cultural issue. So it's not enough to say we're going to invest much more. Because basically the success of the European project was to make Europeans not interested in a war. War is not our game. And this is starting to change. Of course, I do believe that Ukraine came as a major shock, but it was much more shock to the policy elites than to the publics. In the publics, you don't have this major idea that the world is changing in a different way. And it's different from country to country. And, uh, but I do believe, particularly in Germany, uh, uh, I don't believe that they still have the feeling that the world has very much been transformed on this, uh, on this level. And the next thing that is happening, but I do believe it's going to escalate much more, is that post-war Europe is now in crisis because this type of post-1945 Europe was an America's Europe. And the relations between the United States and the European Union has changed dramatically, and they should not be blamed simply on President Trump. President Trump is who he is, uh, and it's easy to talk about him, but at the end of the day, I do believe it started much earlier, and this is... There are much important structural reasons behind it. Simply under the Trump administration, it took this type of a cartoon form, which makes it very more visible. But I do believe that it is changing because, and I'm coming from Washington, I was for the last three months uh, uh, in, the, uh, in, in Washington, and this is an amazing to see. In Washington, every talk is China. You have the feeling, the atmosphere very much of, on the base of what I have been reading historically. This is like... United States, 1949, Truman moment. Suddenly you have the emerging consensus on both sides, Republicans and the Democrats. China is the biggest rival. Everything is going to be decided in the next 10 years. It's going to be U.S. versus China. And you have uh, China becoming the major organizing principle of the American foreign policy. Nevertheless, of what they're talking about, China is at the back of their mind. And if you come to Europe, this is not the way China. There may be people who are unhappy with China for different concrete reasons, technology steps, and so on. Uh, but Europe does not have the feeling, basically, that uh, it is defined by the relations to China. Uh, while for the, uh, for the Americans, China and Russia now are going together. And I do believe the Trump administration lost the hope that they can split the two of them. Uh, but even this, uh, even people who, for example, could be very much antagonized by Russia and afraid of Russia, they're not going to put China and Russia together. Even in some of the East European countries, you're going to believe that China could be kind of a balancing with respect to Russia. I'm saying this because this is also going to be part of this post-war Europe in which Europe is trying to get a kind of a security outlook of its own, which was not the case before. The second Europe that constituted current European Union is the post-1968 Europe of Rights. And it was very much based on the experience of a generation that 
there was uh, Simon Moyen has this beautiful book called The Last Utopia about human rights. And this is when these projects of the future world went into crisis, particularly after 1968 uh, 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 on the left, but it was very much uh, with the, after Soviet invasion if, in, in Czechoslovakia, but also what happened in China and so on. So the human rights became kind of an identity of a very important generation in European politics. And when we talk about human rights, it was the rights of the individuals, but it was particularly the minority rights. So when we talk about rights, we talk about minority rights. And when we talk identity politics, we talk about minority politics. This was not the case in Eastern Europe, and I'm going to touch on this, but for the Western Europe, this was the second Europe of rights. And on this second Europe, we also had a major transformation. And this major transformation is seen with the rise of the new conservative populist parties all over. And of course, these parties are very different. Uh, uh, but there is one thing that is common for all this trend. They speak also rights, but this time it's the rights of majorities. They're talking identity politics, but this politics is the politics of the majority. And the major question which they ask is, the majority in a democracy have the right to decide who is going to belong to their political community and what, the, what kind of conditions. So this is very much about citizen rights and basically integration and so on. And of course, we can discuss much more where it comes from, but it's a major change and you can see it all over the political spectrum. It's not something happening in one country and so on. Uh, and this type of uh, Europe also has not found itself. And uh, my argument was always that it really should be seen what we're seeing with some of these populist parties, very much in comparison with a certain mood on the left, which we basically experience, or Europe experienced, Western Europe, after 68 and the beginning of the 1970s. The success of the European democracies then was that European center-right managed to integrate part of what then was far-left, European center left, far left, and basically to make some of these players the mainstream parties. Uh, we have been talking with Joschka Fischer recently, and listen, in the 1970s, some of these far left political figures were perceived as a major threat to the political system. They were on the streets, they were talking violence, uh, they were very anti-capitalist, uh, there was a very strong attack also on uh, uh, basically NATO and so on. But over time you have a period of de-radicalization and in a certain way you manage to split the really radical groups, Red Army faction in Germany on one side, and certain groups which basically try to understand that if they want to be part of this game they should respect the rules of the democratic game, and it's not simply going on the elections, but it's also rule of law and kind of the liberal frame. Is the center-right be able to do this with the far-right today? It's a big question. It's a big question. Uh, and uh, But in a certain way, it is a kind of a much more move which is part of a change of a cultural hegemony on many of the rights. It's not simply basically about one political party changing another in government. And the third Europe that constituted the European Union that you have today is for sure the Europe of post-1989. This was the United Europe that also included the Eastern Europe. It was a big change. A lot of new countries come. It was perceived as a huge success. It has an important economic uh, uh, effect, positive, most of them. There were also some negative, but this is also a different Europe when it comes to how you're governing it because of the size, because of everything. And of course, we see also the crisis of this united Europe. And of course, Mr. Orban and Mr. Kaczynski are the faces of this, but it's a much bigger crisis. And what I'm going to argue is that in order to understand what is happening in Central and Eastern Europe, uh, there are four facts and two are in the book and two I'll try to add that, at least for me, are quite important to keep in your mind. 
One is that if you look at the ethnic maps of Europe in the beginning of 20th century, you're going to see two Europes. One was quite ethnically homogeneous, and it was Western Europe. And the other was quite culturally and ethnically diverse, and this was Central and Eastern Europe. It was the Habsburg lands, Poland, Czech Republic, Hungary. Then came, for these countries, the interwar period was perceived as a period of trouble, and the minorities in many of the countries, particularly German minorities, were perceived as the security minorities, uh, very much creating problems for the territorial disintegration of the country, Poland, Czech Republic. As a result of the World War II, what we had in Central and Eastern Europe was a major ethnic cleansing that ended up with extremely homogeneous ethnic populations. In 1939, one-third of the population of Poland were not Poles. There were Germans, there were Jews, there were Ukrainians. At present, more than 95% of the population of Poland are Poles. And this is true for Hungary and this is true for the Czech Republic. At the same time, just the opposite was happening in uh, Western Europe, where as a result of decolonization and basically migration, societies that have been quite ethnically uh, homogeneous started to diversify. Let's give you the comparisons between two countries staying next to each other with a very similar histories, Hungary and Poland today, uh, Hungary and uh, Austria today. In Hungary, 4% of the population, around 4% of the population of Hungary today, uh, citizens of Hungary are not born in Hungary. And most of them are Hungarians born in Romania or in Serbia. In Austria, 14% of the citizens of Austria today are not born in Austria. This is percent higher than the American citizens not born in the United States. Around 50% of the kids in the Vienna schools do not have German as a first language. This is a major change. 1968 was the other kind of a major dividing line. There was 1968 in the East, there was 1968 on the West. In the West, it was very much about individual rights. It was basically about minority rights. In uh, Central and Eastern Europe, it was about the right of the nation. It was about sovereignty. When the Polish students went on the street in 1968, they have been singing patriotic songs because it was about the Soviets and about the sovereignty of their states, and the Czech Republic, Czechoslovakia then was an obvious case about this. I'm saying this because these cultural differences were very strengthened by a one part of the migration story that is basically under-discussed. And this is that as a result of the opening of the European borders after 1989, and our country is joining the European Union, you see a major process of depopulation of Central and Eastern Europe. I'm going to give you some figures, and for those of you who don't know them, it's going to be quite shocking. Compared with 1989, Baltic republics lost basically one-third of their population. You have the combination of aging people and people who moved to live and work in the West. Bulgaria basically, in, uh, after 1989, lost 20% of its population, and the projection is that they're going to lose 21% more in the coming 30 years. We are talking everywhere about very small nations. In Romania, which is a country of 20, 21 million, for the last 10 years, 3.4 million people left the country to work uh, and live abroad. And out of them, three-fourths are on the age under 35. <laughs> Depopulation. When East Europeans talk migration, the biggest concern is not about foreigners coming because there are not many foreigners running to our country at the moment. I never saw basically a Syrian dreaming to live in Romania or Bulgaria. 
but it is about the trauma of the people living. Because people who left, they're hurting their countries in three important ways. First, economically, it's not simply that you're losing labor. And in the beginning, it was positive because there was high unemployment. People are coming to Norway. They're working. Their remittance is money. So it was positive. And from the point of view of the individuals, it is still positive. But the problem is that people who are living, all the money that state has invested in their education go with them. So paradoxically, if you're going to start to calculate the money had been leaving Eastern Europe as the investment that had been done in the education of these people, you're going to see a huge amount of money. And in certain parts of the public services particularly, it is dramatic. I'm always joking that it's much easier to find in Eastern Europe non-corrupt politician than to find a nurse. Because the nurses are totally out. They're very badly paid in our countries. On the other side, there is a huge demand for people taking care of all the people and much richer countries. So all the people that have these skills are living, you can imagine what is happening to the health system as a result of it. But also it's psychological. And psychologically, this is quite important because even if your life has changed, and in many of our countries, the change is very positive. If you basically go Bulgaria, but particularly if you go to a place like Poland, this is a different country. And this is different in a very positive way. So you can, and even Poles are going to recognize it. 80% of them are quite satisfied with their life. But when you are living in this country and you know that many of your friends wants to leave the country, the idea of the success is not the same. It's not the same to be successful in a country which everybody wants to come to and in a country from which many wants to leave. The strange and third political effect of all this is, and this is part of the paradox of 1989, after every revolution somebody is leaving the country. But normally this is the defeated party. This was the white Russians that lived after the Bolshevik revolutions, and it was white French after the French Revolution. Uh, in Eastern Europe, the first to leave was the liberal East Europeans, because every revolutionary wants to live in the future, and if you believe that the future of Poland is Germany, better to go directly to Germany than to wait basically your country to become like Germany. So as a result of it, you have uh, a very a lot of young people living. As a result of it, the young people are becoming a small generational cohort and their vote does not matter so much on the elections. And this explains very much the fact why you're going to read a lot of story about young Romanians or Bulgarians protesting on the streets, but you're not going to see their choices very much being represented in the government or in the parliament. They don't have the numbers. They don't have the numbers. Uh, so I'm saying this, and there is uh, my last point is the other thing that happened in Central and Eastern Europe was that after 1989, there was something that uh, I'm calling the imitation imperative. The idea was that with the end of the ideological confrontation, what uh, the world, and particularly post-communist countries, are going to do is imitate the West, institutions, norms, ways of life. And this was very much also the choice of our countries themselves. But after a long period of imitations, something important is happening. The relations between the model and the imitator are asymmetrical relations. You're all the time judged by somebody else. Your success, your failure. And this rejection of the imitation is becoming the major battle cry of all of the populist parties. As one of uh, the major intellectual supporters of Mr. Orban used to say, we don't want to imitate the Germans anymore. We don't want to imitate the French. We want to be our own. Uh, so this kind of a rejection of the imitation as the way of politics is behind much of uh, the, uh, the support for the populist parties which we see. So I'm going to end up here because in my view, European Union, 
in order to get out of this crisis. It's not simply basically trying to do slightly better on the economy or try to have institutional form here and there. It should try to deal with all these three Europes that we are talking about. It should try to reinvent itself as a post-war project, but post-war project in the world in which the military threats are much more back and very different than they have been before. Uh, it is going to basically try to redefine itself with a kind of a cultural tide that is basically very much moving towards majority rights and how this is going to be reconciled with the idea of the post-national European Union. And for sure, this is going to try to deal with the discrepancies between East and West because I'm, uh, I'm planning to do it. I still have not do it technically, but... My major argument is that the difference within the European Union when it comes to certain type of liberal values and others between Eastern Europe and Western Europe are going to be very much similar to the difference between the red states and the blue states in the U United States. And they're going to be very much also being explained by the same phenomena, depopulation in the red states, much more diverse and kind of economically dynam dynamism in the, in the blue states and now because of President Trump, at least the studies in the United States are flourishing. Uh, so I, I'm going, to, I'm going to, uh, to stop here, and I'm very much kind of uh, really interested in the discussion because Norway, at least in my totally illiterate view, uh, you have a kind of a very particular point of view. We have been talking, you're both inside and outside. So you, try, you have this perspective of somebody who really knows how it is, because in the everyday politics, Norway is very much part of it. On the other side, you don't need to share the hysteria uh, of many of our countries being inside and trying to do and so on and so on. So from this point of view, thank you very much for the invitation and for the opportunity to present. Thank you.